Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you know, guys, there's no shortage of scenarios in which AI proves to be our downfall. You've got popular films like the Terminator and Matrix series in which we have artificial intelligence literally revolting against us and then subjugating us to the numerous predictions that automation is going to displace every job. And we run the gamut of all these different scenarios where AI is going to be our end. And then we have various companies and organizations that are investing billions of dollars to develop and advance artificial intelligence who are saying, no, 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 no. You don't need to worry about that. AI is not going to totally destroy the world. It's going to make our world better. It's going to take over the more repetitive, dull, and dangerous parts of our jobs. And it's going to free us up to concentrate on more rewarding activities. So can we get to any truth in the matter? Is there some sort of truth we can suss out from these extremes? Well, today I'm joined by Oz and Kara, the hosts of the series Sleepwalkers, a show all about AI. And if you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend you do because it is a, a phenomenal show. Guys, welcome to Tech Stuff. Hi. <sighs> thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Jonathan. We're huge fans of Tech Stuff. And uh Delighted to be joining the How Stuff Works iHeart family in the in, in, and being part of the, the Tech Stuff Network. So thank you. Well, thank you because uh, you know you've you have lifted up the boat of Tech Stuff certainly because your work is really inspiring. Uh, before we jump into this conversation, if you could just take a couple moments and let my listeners know kind of you know what Sleepwalkers is, how you would describe that show to somebody. Let's say you're at a cocktail party. And you are asked, what do you do for a living? You say, well, I'm working on this show. How do you describe it? So they call, I think they call it an elevator pitch, but this is a cocktail pitch. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're based in New York, so we spend our whole lives at cocktail parties. So I was born at a cocktail party. <laughs> and many of which one. happen in elevators in New York, as I understand it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or apartments the size of elevators. Uh, <laughs> so Sleepwalkers is a podcast that actually Oz came to me with, it was his idea, his brainchild. But I I will say first, you know, I've I used to report on tech and science at the Huffington Post and I had a show called Talk Nerdy to Me. And when Oz came to me and said, you know, I wanna I want to really make a show that deals with all of the human touch points that AI could possibly come in contact with. So healthcare, agriculture, uh, you know, science in general, love, love, you know, all of these places where people aren't necessarily thinking that AI will have an impact, but they already should be basically. And, you know, I said yes, very quickly, because I'm very interested in all of those touch points. So each episode really is a deep dive into uh, one of those areas, as I said, whether it be healthcare, transhumanism, agriculture, the military, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, these are these are places where we're going to see the presence of AI. We're already seeing the presence of AI. And, and the show really tries to explore that. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's really pretty incredible when you sit down and look at where AI has already kind of crept into our day to day experience, sometimes in ways that we wouldn't necessarily associate with AI, like one a uh, report I read said, well, you could argue, it, it's a very limited 
application of AI, but that things like spell check and grammar check, which are now standard in apps and clients and smartphones and browsers, that that's a, a type of artificial intelligence that if it's doing something besides just detecting, no, this sequence of letters doesn't correspond with any words in the language you are writing in, it's also perhaps looking at context, like saying, well, you use the word weather, but you use the word weather as in the types of uh, uh, meteorological activity that are outside the window as opposed to whether or not you should do something. <laughs> and so you think about that and you realize, oh, yeah, I guess I guess there is a lot more to it than I thought, which kind of brings me to the first point I wanted to make before we dive into the various doom and gloom scenarios of AI, which is how do you guys define artificial intelligence? Because I found that this, this concept, it's so broad that often you can have two people trying to have a meaningful conversation about AI and they're not able to meet in the middle, but it's not because they don't agree with each other. It's simply because they're working from vastly different definitions of what artificial intelligence actually is. I think that's a great point, Jonathan. Um, just to back up a little bit, um, I want to tell you how um, I came up with the name Sleepwalkers for the yeah. series. Um, and then I'd love to dive into, I think, the excellent point you make, which is that um, effectively yesterday's AI is today's computing. Um, but so I was very struck uh, about 18 months ago when several of the senior and early employees of Facebook, people like Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, uh, who've now left the firm, uh, obviously Chris Hughes more recently, coming out and saying, you know, I wouldn't let my children use technology. As Steve Jobs famously said, um, Steve Jobs, I think we had an audio issue, so I'll just repeat that. Steve Jobs famously gave an interview uh, to Nick Bilton where he said that you know he wouldn't let his children use the iPad. Um, but when the Facebook executives came out and one after the other said that they didn't want their children using this technology, it kind of made me sit up and think, you know, if the people creating this technology don't want their kids to use it, what does that say? I mean, it's like, would you go to a restaurant where the owner didn't let uh, their children eat? I, I certainly wouldn't. So that was the first sort of point of inspiration for, for sleepwalkers. In other words, not being aware of um, the future we may be going into. And then there was a Zuckerberg hearings in the Senate. Uh, and Mark Zuckerberg sat there uh, looking increasingly uh, from from slightly nervous to relieved and calm to actively smug as it became abundantly clear that the senators were not going to be able to hold him to account. I think the idea of those hearings was Senator Orrin Hatch asking Mark Zuckerberg uh, how the platform made money if it was free, and Zuckerberg smirkingly replied, Senator, we run ads. Um, and so between those two things, between the, the Facebookers not wanting their own children on the platform and the grown-ups, i.e. the senators, not being able to hold Facebook to account, I thought, okay, what's going on here? And how can we wake up and make sure that we don't sort of flush our democracy down the toilet and pollute our children's minds by not asking some fundamental questions about how technology is changing how we already live? Um, and that brings me to your second question, Jonathan. What is AI? And it's a fantastic question um, because AI is everywhere. And it's not just the robot future that you see uh, in sci-fi films that you mentioned. And it's not the you know, future-facing products that you know, many brands uh, tell us they're developing. Um, it's basically just statistics and probability, uh, which has got better and better and better over time. But one of the things that we make clear to our listeners in the first episode is that they've already encountered AI 10 times or 100 times by the time 
they've listened to this podcast in their day because if they took an Uber to work in the morning, likely the driver was matched to them and the route was chosen with AI. Uh, if they woke up next to somebody this morning who they'd met through a dating app, uh, AI effectively intervened in their romantic life and connected them with somebody who they matched with. And even, even if you're listening to this podcast right now, there are algorithms, AI algorithms at work, smoothing our voices, compressing the audio, helping with the editing techniques. So AI is everywhere and it's already changing our perception of the world and how we relate relate to the world around us and each other. Yeah, you could even argue at this point that AI is really just a, a, a slightly more focused branch of computer science and that it's, it's almost the same as saying, uh, will computer science save us or doom us? It is too big of a question. You have to start narrowing things down. I, I think the real issue is that for the longest time, we've associated artificial intelligence with the concept of strong AI, which is that idea that we would create a machine that was either capable of or so close to capable that we can't tell the difference of thinking like a human or processing information like a human and coming to decisions like a human would possibly with the uh, added elements of consciousness and self-awareness. Um, and, and you know, I, I talk about how many times in this show how that's a very complicated thing even for us to talk about just as human beings without bringing machines into it. So I'm sorry, I can't do that, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, Hal, Hal or, or IBM, if you prefer. Uh, you know, they're just three letters off. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, that, wonderful, that wonderful feeling that that's the only thing that AI really is, right? It's, it's the super intelligent deep thought or Hal computer that's capable of processing information, typically in natural language. Uh, it, it's the the Watson platform participating on Jeopardy. Like we we've precipitated this uh, this thought, this this concept of AI, and we've reinforced it with entertainment and with applications that tried to emulate the stuff that we saw in entertainment. But as you point out, AI is is a much more broad concept than this super intelligent machine. It's a whole bunch of stuff that's all about processing information in a particular way, typically to come to some sort of uh, decision or action upon information that has been automated. So it might be something like Facebook's algorithm, which is all designed – ultimately what Facebook's algorithm is designed to do is to keep you on Facebook. It, it's ultimate, right. ultimately designed so that you will – see the next thing on Facebook, it's it's reinforcing that desire. And uh, and so that's what, it, once the algorithm, quote unquote, figures you out, that's why you're going to start seeing a pretty, uh, a, a pretty consistent presentation of what you would see on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but that would be one example of that. So as you point out, we do interact with AI all the time, whether it's on social media, with those algorithms, um, whether it's with an app, maybe we have one of those personal assistants in our home that uh, that uses AI to various extents. Um, I talked about just recently on the radio, I had a, a conversation about how Comcast is coming out with sensors that are meant to monitor the health of people uh, living in homes that have been outfitted with these ambient sensors. And they monitor things like how often you get up to go to the bathroom or whether you stay in bed 
a longer time than normal. And to be perfectly fair to Comcast, they're they're pitching this as something to help the elderly or people who otherwise need caretakers to give them more independence in their own homes. But you could also very easily, without much imagination at all, start to come up with scenarios where that could become uh, truly invasive. Oh, yeah. So I was bringing up Second Chance AI, which was a project that came out of the University of Washington, which was a was designed to detect opioid overdoses early on using um, an opioid user's cell phone to detect changes in breath and really act as a monitor for people who were long-time or short-time heroin and opioid users. So that device would then be able to detect this overdose and allow family members to know or also alert the person who is overdosing that they're in a bad way. So in the case of opioid users, it's worth the trade-off because um, you know it's very helpful and potentially life-saving for, for them to know, based on previous breathing patterns and previous movements, what's likely to happen next in an overdose scenario. And for most Facebook users, they indeed get to see the ads which are relevant to them. But the problem with AI is it can't discriminate between um, individuals and general population. So although it's more probable that somebody will have a successful pregnancy than not, it's very painful for the edge cases, and AI can't effectively discriminate for them. And I just want to say really quickly, and I think this is an important point to make, especially about Second Chance. So Second Chance basically is harnessing the power of a cell phone's microphone, which is the same microphone that you can either choose to turn on or off when you're in Instagram that can listen to what you're saying and basically then use data that's collected to target you with products that you probably don't need, like another pair of shoes designed by a company that you've never heard of, but that you might like. So my point is, is that this microphone that, you know, as Oz was saying, could, you know, inappropriately spy on you, essentially, unless you are taking control of it, is also a microphone that could save a life of somebody who is in the early stages of an opioid overdose. So I think that kind of rocks my world when I think about the two existing on the same piece of technology. Um, again, it's that they're being used for different things and two different things that are, you know, have hugely different outcomes. But sure. they're all about making guesses about what's going to happen in the future based on what's happened in the past. And that can either be liberating or constraining, depending on the technology and the intention and your interaction with it. Yeah, uh, I'm reminded of uh, something similar uh, that was it, it was an interesting uh, use of AI that ended up being a um, uh, another embarrassing and and emotionally traumatic story that uh, broke a few years ago. I want to say it was Target that sent coupons, like maternity coupons, to a young woman who uh, her father had intercepted the thing and and was incensed that Target would send these to his his daughter. Uh, and then, because the father, or the father of the the young woman, did not realize that she was actually pregnant, she had not told him. Wow! And so he was upset, and he was very angry at Target. You know, saying, "How dare you suggest this?" Then discovered that she was pregnant after all, and it shows again that it was the intent was trying to be helpful, you could see that at least from, you know, from a thousand yards away, you could see that, where it's a a company that says, 
you know, you're going to have need of these things. Here are some coupons for those things. If you shop with us, we can get you some deals. So, you know, it's going to be a mutually beneficial kind of arrangement. Uh, but then you realize, oh, but this is on a subject that is extremely personal. And right. in this case, had this unintended consequence. It was the same sort of predictive approach. And they were able to predict the fact that she was pregnant based upon her browsing history. So they were proactively acting on this data that had been kind of gathered through her browsing activity. And then uh, that's what ended up causing this sort of a uh, – scandal's probably too strong of a word for it, but certainly a brouhaha. <laughs> I think if, <laughs> I, if we're looking at the grand scheme of of, uh, of how do we determine the level of, of uh, awkwardness, embarrassment, and potential emotional trauma. Um, so what- – Yes, please. One of the things that's making me think about Jonathan is a, a study at Stanford, um, which basically turned um, AI onto identifying sexual orientation from photographs. So they took a data set, publicly available data set of uh, images of people's faces from dating websites, which have been tagged by sexual preference, i.e. straight, gay or bisexual. Mm -hmm. Then they trained the algorithm on which faces corresponded to which expressed sexual preferences. And the algorithm, uh, after this training, was able to identify with 90% accuracy for men and 80% accuracy for women sexual orientation just from seeing five photographs of them. So, again, that technology by itself is is more or less neutral. Um, but you think about it being overlaid onto a citywide surveillance system in a country uh, like Brunei or Saudi Arabia where homosexuality is, is punishable up to the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And it starts to become very, very scary. Um, so we are in this world now where, where technology is advancing and the ability to make these predictions based on past data is so advanced, it doesn't need to have consciousness to be killer. Right, right. Yeah, the the fear of the Matrix or Terminator future, while uh, compelling, turns out to not be necessary at all. Like, that doesn't need to be a component for this to already be dangerous. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go into that in greater detail in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. Oz, you were saying just before the break, I mean, you made that great point about how AI has this potential to do potentially, you know, great harm as a, as a possibility without the need for any sort of intelligence or malevolence on the part mm-hmm. of the machine. In fact, it can just unthinkingly, in human terms, cause some some pretty uh, terrible consequences, unintended, certainly, or at least we hope so, on the, on the part of those who design the systems. And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about that, about how sometimes that can happen. And one, and I'm sure you've come across this in your reporting and in your podcasting, one problem that's not only confined to AI, but to, and not just to tech, but across the board, is bias, right? This idea that when you're designing a system, you're doing so from a particular point of view. And because of that, uh, you are likely excluding other points of view, maybe not consciously, but you are. And that ends up meaning that if it's a system that's supposed to apply to everyone, but it particularly applies well to people who are similar to the people who designed the system and not so well to everybody else, that becomes a problem. And we've certainly seen this 
in systems like um, Microsoft Connect, when Microsoft was pushing the Connect uh, peripheral, which is the gesture uh, recognition peripheral, where there was a camera, it had an infrared camera and, a, and a, a regular optical camera that could detect motion so that it could be translated into commands for the system. Uh, it was discovered pretty quickly that it worked great for white people, but not so great for uh, people of color. It had been designed by people who had not really worked with it in that regard. And so we see there, uh, you could argue, a, a fairly um, uh, harmless, in the grand scheme of things, failure of a system. But you look at something like computer vision for maybe an autonomous car, and you could argue, well, now you're talking about life or death situations. So to me, one of the big challenges in AI is making sure that you that the people designing the systems are doing their best to eliminate bias as best they can. And part of that, I think, uh, falls to a, a, a real concentrated effort to increase diversity in the organizations, companies that are actually designing these systems in the first place. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the conversation about AI and bias has sort of reached criti critical mass, I guess. You know, mm -hmm. it, I think it was yesterday or the day before, you know, um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez was speaking out a, specifically about this problem as it uh, pertains to facial recognition technology. Um, there was a very good MIT study that recently came out that, you know, a lot of these programs are developed by white men and therefore are extremely biased. And, and, and I think politicians now are, are really trying to sound the alarm because I think it's um it's not something people think about in their everyday lives mm -hmm. you know I don't think people are you know walking around getting to their job that maybe they don't want to be at you know driving to work driving their kids to school you know thinking about the implications of bias and facial recognition technology <laughs> I think people have other things to think about but I think it's very important um especially when you know politicians start bringing up these problems uh, for sort of ordinary people to start to think, well, actually, wait a minute, I might encounter this technology um, at uh, at Border Patrol, you know, when I'm flying out of the country. Sure. Or, you know, I might encounter this technology as I walk into a stadium that's now using, you know, a quick lane. And I think when people start to listen to politicians who care about these issues, um, they realize, again, that there are much more human touch points than we think. And then so issues of like bias and gender discrimination, whereas before people weren't thinking about them as much in terms of technology and artificial intelligence, you know, now people are are realizing that there's real, I don't know, there's there's real issues in terms of who is developing these technologies and who is harmed by the inherent bias within these technologies. And I just want to say something really quickly. Uh, one hypocrisy that I think is a, is really wild and worth noting is, you know, the European Union has recently released basically a list of seven, I don't know, I don't even know what you call them, but bullet points about, you know, the way in which we should be talking about and regulating artificial intelligence. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of them, one of like the main bullet points is to say, you know, we really have to focus on uh, by the inherent bias um, within these, you know, both algorithms and the way th uh, this technology is built. 
Um, we don't we want to make sure that it doesn't get ahead of us, essentially. Right. And at the same time, the European Union in, in Latvia and in Hungary and Greece is using is piloting a program called I border control, mm-hmm. um, which is basically being tested and run by border patrol agents um, to match people's faces on a very, very large amount of data and then decide if a person should be detained for further questioning, right? So (laughs) I think right now, both politically and socially, there is a reckoning that's going on, which is like, okay, we want to use algorithms to quote unquote, make our borders safer. But we also don't want to allow these same things to get ahead of us so far that, you know, we no longer have control over them. And mm-hmm. I think that human beings in general and specifically politicians are having a really difficult time reckoning with the the sort of inherent hypocrisy of wanting to harness the power of AI to you know, make smarter predictions, uh, make policing easier, but also regulating these things. Yeah, uh, we're seeing it in in business too, right? Like we're seeing businesses that rely heavily upon algorithms. They're not necessarily nearly as as critical as uh, the sort of decisions that would take place at a border where you could potentially really disrupt a person's life uh, unfairly and that would that's terrible but like uh, I just did an episode recently about the YouTube ad apocalypse you know this idea of advertisers pulling their money and their their advertising out of YouTube and how that hurt a lot of content creators and sort of the problems that YouTube faces uh, one of the big ones being that you know they have a, a pretty aggressive algorithm that goes again goes in and tags videos and has them as being potentially uh, uh, not family-friendly, and therefore they cannot be monetized. Uh, And the reason why YouTube has to depend upon that is because you have more than 450 hours of content being uploaded every single minute. So there's no way you could actually have human gatekeepers who could review all the video footage that's being uploaded to YouTube every day and determine whether or not this actually merits being allowed into the monetization camp versus being demonetized. So you see from the scale that they have to rely on it, but you also see from the limitation of the algorithms themselves how all these different cases that if a human were to review would probably be considered perfectly fine for monetization get, you know, excluded. So we're seeing that as well, this idea that uh, we're seeing the limitations of artificial mm-hmm. intelligence where they're working off a, a certain set of criteria, but they aren't always able to apply them in the same way that a human would, right? They don't, they don't take in all the context. So we see a lot of videos that are covering sensitive subjects like news about the LGBTQ communities, uh, news about places that are full of conflict. And these are meaningful and useful and educational videos. They're not sensationalized. They're not, you know, trying to to exploit anyone. And uh, the creators are trying to monetize the videos in order to be able to fund their efforts, but then they get demonetized. So, Again, we're seeing where artificial intelligence can cause harm 
um, in ways that we wouldn't have necessarily anticipated uh, back when, you know, folks like Arthur C. Clarke were writing about artificial intelligence. <laughs> One of the things that we've found very exciting about Sleepwalkers is that we've been able to get access to um, a lot of kind of hard to get into places. So uh, we went to the Facebook headquarters in Palo Alto to meet uh, Nathaniel Gleicher, who runs cybersecurity policy for Facebook. Uh, we went to the NYPD headquarters to meet the director of analytics, the guy who makes the calls and helps develop the software on what kind of predictive policing is acceptable, what kind of policing uh, predictive policing is not acceptable. And we went to Google. We went to Google twice. We went to Google X which is the kind of secret lab which invents the future, like the self-driving cars, the balloons which uh, sail in the stratosphere to deliver internet to hard-to-reach places. But we also went to a very interesting program at Google called Jigsaw. And Jigsaw's mission is to right some of the wrongs of the internet. And one of the big projects they're working on is sentiment analysis. Because, um, you know, the early promise of the internet, which Jonathan you may remember better than me and Kara. <laughs> is that an age joke? No, wow. that was not. No. He meant more that your podcast has been around. Yeah, your that's podcast that's been fair. Been that's fair. There's a podcast age I was going to say, I put up with that with Tari, but I don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, go ahead. <laughs> was comments, right? Yes. The internet was comments. It was comment boards, and it was MSN Messenger with random people you'd never met before. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, comments became this morass of utter hatred. Mm -hmm. And uh, most websites stopped accepting comments because it was just too horrific and they couldn't afford to have moderators to, to, to make it a safe space. So this program at Google, Jigsaw, one of the things they're working on is sentiment analysis. So putting a bunch of comments through an algorithm to detect whether or not the comments are hateful. And the technology is now um, being used by the New York Times who are trying to reintroduce a comment section on their website. The problem is these... Um, Algorithms learn from how humans have historically perceived the negativity or positivity of uh, language. And so, guess what? Gay black female was originally considered by the algorithm to be hate speech. Mm -hmm. uh, and white man was considered positive. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to make sure these algorithms don't reproduce uh, our very painful history and entrench it. Right. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And it also kind of reminds me, uh, I, uh, I, I created an outline for this episode, and I'm, I'm sort of generally making my way through it. Uh, this is sort of my milieu. But uh, mm -hmm. I, was, I was thinking also that this plays into another component of AI that doesn't have anything to do with the AI natively, but rather our interactions with AI. And this comes up with something that humans are particularly good at that AI isn't good at. And humans are really good at sussing out what the, the high-level operations are for a system and then figuring out how to game that system. So mm -hmm. we also see a lot of examples of people who have recognized how the AI is going about detecting something 
And then they end up using that to their own advantage. And in fact, I, I listened to one of your recent episodes of Sleepwalkers, the Poker Face episode. First of all, Kara, uh, amazing Lady Gaga. Second of all, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> As a karaoke king, well, that was actually I, a robot version of me doing Lady Gaga. <laughs> well, that was uh, my hat is off to the to Robo then. <laughs> but the <laughs> but yeah the the there was the discussion. Uh, there was the 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 professor who was talking about how students had figured out how to. Uh, to insert key words in their CVs, but they used white text on white backgrounds. So it wouldn't mm-hmm. show up to a human reviewer, but it was the sort of stuff that machines could read. So machines were picking up on these CVs that had these uh, words that typically were going to very prestigious schools. It was it was linking things back to things like Harvard or Cambridge. And so their CVs were popping up at the top of the pile for consideration because the machines were the ones in charge of going through the first pass of these CVs. And then humans would look at the next pass. And so you, it increased your, uh, your chances of getting called in for an interview. And meanwhile, the humans are none the wiser because they don't, they don't see this hidden text. Uh, which I thought was a fascinating point. It reminded me actually of the early days of SEO uh, and web mm-hmm. search where people would just flood a web page with all the top searched topics uh, at the bottom of the page, even, even though they had nothing to do with whatever the content of the page was. It was the same sort of thing. They were gaming the system. And uh, that's another way that AI could potentially become harmful. You know, in this case, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's brilliant that the kids are doing this because, you know, any way to get your foot in the door, if you're the best candidate for the role, you should definitely get that interview. But Well, especially if the game is rigged. Exactly. Anyway. Yes. That's I, another great point. Julian and I have, Julian's our producer, and uh, Julian and I have talked about how we hope to see much more cyber, I don't know, we cyberpunk rock in the future whereas you know i I think yeah cyberpunk is not cyberpunk future cyberpunk rock oh we Mm -hmm. don't want cyberpunk rock because that would be bad music probably (laughs) created by an algorithm but you know there are it's fun it's i mean it's kind of fun i think when deep fakes can get tricky but it's sometimes fun to see how people are gaming computers you know i i was talking about this thing, uh, ref- the Reflecticles, which were actually designed, were, were part of a Kickstarter campaign, actually, to um, raise money to design these glasses that would basically direct natural light right back into a camera that was equipped with facial recognition technology. So it was sort of a way for kids to dodge cameras that were trying to recognize them. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I just, I don't know, I guess the my rebellious side really really um is warmed by by things like that <laughs> it's nice that we can still resist i mean yes. it's you know it feels so overwhelming uh technology and we may talk about china later on um you know p- part of the problem of this kind of surveillance architecture we have is that it kind of demotivates you to even try uh, and resist but the issue of these students um peppering their applications with uh with with keywords like harvard and stanford on their applications in white text versus white background does bring up another uh, concern or issue, which is what we call data poisoning. Mm. Uh, And data poisoning is a a military term that we heard from the former Secretary of State, uh, sorry, 
is a military term that we heard from the former Navy Secretary under Pres- President Clinton, Richard Danzig, uh, who's a guest on our podcast, Sleepwalkers. He said that, you know, as we're relying on algorithms more and more to make decisions in the battlefield, decisions about which targets are threatening, which targets the civilian, whether an adversary is preparing for an attack or not, um, and we're relying on algorithms to, to make these um, calls for us, or at least to inform our decisions, you know, smart enemies can start to feed uh, the algorithms they know exist poison data. In other words, you know, they can put on their own uh, reflectacles uh, and use our technological infrastructure against us by tricking our algorithms into thinking things are happening that aren't happening. Mm, yeah, that's a, a another scary concept. It reminds me I, I, the last little point I have on my on my outline will will loop back in a second. But this uh, the the various cases of false alarms uh, that have happened since the 1950s in the early warning systems for various nuclear programs. This has happened both in the United States and uh, the former Soviet Union. Uh, We have seen cases where there were systems that detected a nuclear strike when, in fact, that had never happened. Mm -hmm. But but these were, you know, again, automated systems designed to detect patterns, something that AI is really – that's one of the main things that AI does is look for patterns and then uh, uh, start to predict things based upon the patterns that have been observed. And it was a couple of different cases of mistaken uh, uh, things that were not actually patterns but were interpreted as patterns and that we thus saw a very near miss into going into uh, full nuclear war. And the only reason we didn't is because there were actually human beings who said, hang on, let me, let me triple check this before we commit to mutually assured destruction. And, uh, you know, we were very fortunate in that case that we had clear-thinking individuals who were second-guessing the systems. The danger I see is that we start to depend more and more heavily upon the systems where we are less likely to resist the decisions coming out. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about that again in just a moment. But first, let's take another quick break. So I was talking about the the early warning systems. It kind of relates to another problem that we hear in AI. This one's uh, one I hear side by side with bias as being one of the big concerns about AI. And that's what is commonly referred to as the black box problem, which is where you've designed a system that is so uh, complicated or perhaps purposefully obfuscated that you cannot see how the system actually operates. And so you're getting output from this system, and the output appears to be good, but you don't necessarily understand all the steps that went through the system to come to that. And we see this in machine learning in particular, where you've got, you know, these artificial neural networks that have different weights on different decisions, and then they give you what is, uh, at least statistically speaking, the most correct answer for whatever it is you're looking for. If we don't know how the machine is coming to that decision, then we can't be fully sure that it is the best one. And so there have been a lot of people that I've seen uh, arguing for more transparent approaches to AI to make sure that it's sort of the system that we can audit so that we do feel reasonably certain it's working as intended and not producing results that could be less than ideal or even harmful. 
Uh, it's one of the big concerns I've seen over the recent years that, you know, the, the bias one being on one side and the black box problem being on the other. Have you guys encountered any of that in your work so far? Uh, yeah, we have actually. And, and, and just in a lot of uh, recent news, um, the, the black box AI problem, it kind of feels like a Ponzi scheme where it's like, OK, we have these returns that we know are good and someone's selling you these returns. They're not telling you how these returns are happening, mm -hmm. but you trust that because you want to see your money grow exponentially, you're going to give them the money that you have now and expect to see those returns. And that's how people get taken. I mean, that's how people, it's not funny, but it's sort of, yeah. you know, how Ponzi schemes work. Um, the black box AI is similar to me, at least in my understanding, in that we don't really understand what linguistic patterns the networks are actually analyzing. We just mm -hmm. know that they're analyzing them. And that, that to me, as someone who is um, not a computer scientist, I'm like, what? Like, that's, how is that possible? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I mean, I think, I think it's a bit alarming. And I know there are people, uh, there's a team at Google right now that's sort of uh, working on this, working to fix it. And they sort of call it, you know, go, oh, I'm not a driver, so I don't know, popping the hood, going under the hood <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. Of, <laughs> of AI to, to, you know, better understand what exactly is going on. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think... You know, again, going back to what I was saying about the EU um, releasing these sort of the seven guidelines, you know, one of them is transparency, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And it, that's not only transparency in sort of how we're using AI in, you know, various touch points in human life, but also how AI or how algorithms actually work. And I think, you know, not only do people not understand how many human touch points daily you know, consist of some form of artificial intelligence. They don't understand exactly how the AI is working. I mean, that's an even, that's more difficult. Mm -hmm. And so I think this idea that even the people who are feeding data into these algorithms don't know exactly how the algorithms are treating the data is really a cause for alarm. And not, yeah. not to, not to, not to be alarmist, but I, but I do think it's a cause for alarm. And I, and I do know there's a, there's actually a lot of research going on at MIT about it as well, because I think even for people who are in the field, it's something that worries them. I think um, it's worth mentioning that Henry Kissinger, who is obviously a controversial figure, <laughs> um, wrote a piece about this uh, mm -hmm. last year for The Atlantic under the headline, How the Enlightenment Ends. <laughs> and, you know, Kissinger is somebody who, into his 90s, you know, likes being in the game and being hot. So in some sense... I think sense, he invested in Theranos. Am I... He did invest in Theranos. <laughs> well, he was yeah. certainly involved with Theranos. Yes, yeah. he, he was involved. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, so he, you know, so he has an appetite for, for, these, for these topics. On the other hand, you know, here's somebody in their 90s and, and the, the piece was basically he convened as many of the leading minds uh, in the world on AI that he could and wrote this piece, this state of the nation piece on AI called How the Enlightenment Ends. Um, and the main topic of, the, of this essay was about the black box problem. So Kissinger's point was throughout human history, we have been able to state why we did stuff uh, look at the outcome, argue about whether our reasoning that got us to that outcome was correct or faulty, 
and then improve our ability to reason. And when you have these black box AI systems which make decisions but we're as, as yet unable to understand why they made the decisions, it takes away the ability to have a debate. And that mm. is such a fundamental part of what it means to be a human being in 21st century liberal society um, that it's frightening to think about losing that ability. On the other hand, and the classic you know, the classic illustration of this problem is called the trolley car problem. Mm-hmm. An autonomous car is driving along. It has to choose one person to kill. Does it choose, does it swerve right and kill the child or swerve left and, and kill the old person? Um, and it will never be able to explain why it made the decision it made. Uh, you know, that's probably true for most drivers as well because um, they'll either have been killed themselves, uh, they'll have had so much trauma in the crash that they can't remember, or they simply won't know. And mm. as humans, we like to post-rationalize things and then believe that our rationalizations are why we did what we did. But that also may not be true. So I don't want to bash AI too hard for being black box because I think that humans, uh, despite our best interests and, and thousands of years of Aristotelian onwards uh, syllogisms and culture, you know, our logic and rationality I think, is overlaid on some very hard-to-explain animal instincts. Yeah, and... and- when I think about this problem, uh, so this isn't this isn't strictly AI, but uh, I I have a very strong emotional response to the black box problem. But that's because uh, I live in the state of Georgia, and in Georgia, uh, you may or may not know this, we rely heavily upon technologically ancient electronic voting machines that have mm-hmm. no paper trail, mm-hmm. so there's no way to audit them. Mm-hmm. They also have been proven to be vulnerable to uh, to um, attack, you know, to outside attack. And in fact, there's an enormous controversy in the state of Georgia that uh, some servers may have been tampered with. And then the servers that may or may not have been tampered with were mysteriously wiped clear a couple of days before anyone could do an investigation of it. And so – when you see something like that where that lack of transparency can have not just a, a direct impact on lives. I mean, we're talking about actually threatening the very concept of the de- democratic process, right? If you cannot trust the results of your election, you have undermined democracy. And so when I see that, that's why I end up having a very kind of heightened emotional response to the thought of these opaque systems. But Oz, to your point, that is absolutely correct that people – like we we don't necessarily hold people to that same standard. We will take them at their word if they tell us, oh, well, what, what I was thinking when it happened was X, Y, and Z when in reality maybe they weren't thinking anything at all. Maybe they were reacting. But in, in the post-event, they have come up with a rationalization for that action that – works within the narrative that they've constructed for their own lives. So maybe maybe that's because – maybe that means I just need to give machines a little bit of the same slack I would give people. Uh, we do hold case. machines to a, to an unreasonable expectation. I mean, it, you know, how many people are killed every year on the roads by drunk driving, by unqualified driving, by poor driving, mm-hmm. you know, and – when that happens, we kind of take it as a you know a necessary evil so that people can get around in cars. And yet, if anyone is killed in a you know a, an accident involving um, a driverless car, like the, which has happened with Tesla, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's news for, for it runs for months and months and months. I'm not saying it shouldn't be news. I'm not saying it's not saying we should scrutinize. But we also you know in order to enjoy the benefits of AI and technology, 
we have to accept that it comes with risks, uh, just like the automobile itself comes with risks. I, well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kara. No, I was going to say, I, I was speaking to Oz earlier today about this case of um, a man who basically was pitching around a AI-powered hedge fund and is now in a lot of trouble because he lost a lot of money <laughs> for people. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's a, I think it's an interesting story because, you know, it's a legal battle that has emerged that is sort of going to set a precedent for how, you know, AI is incorporated into at least this facet of life, right, in terms of making financial decisions for real human beings with real money, right? And if we're allowing computer programs to make decisions based on data, and then those decisions lead to a, lo a significant loss of fine, a, a significant loss of money. Mm -hmm. You know, who are we holding accountable? Are we holding the money manager accountable? Are we holding the program? Are we, you know, are we holding the algorithm accountable? The person who wrote the algorithm. The person who wrote the algorithm accountable. You know, I think, and and I I actually don't think the American legal system. I don't think any legal system really knows how to handle this problem. And how would you? How would you if you don't even know how the algorithm is working and that you have no language for like human language for it? So I think and we're, we're going to see more and more cases of this because I think at the same time and Oz talks about this a lot with me is, you know, AI is used as such a strong marketing tool right now in all mm. facets of life. And again, in healthcare, in agriculture, in, you know, in computing, in, in, auto, in the automobile industry. And so. I think people are very susceptible to being marketed with AI. It's it has a serious ooh ah factor right now, but at the same time, are we willing to accept AI's shortcomings? I mean, I think we have to be, um, but I think you know, as Oz just said, like people are setting their expectations a bit high. I mean, they are computers after all. Yeah, and well, we've also we live in an era where we've seen such incredible advancement in computers that it starts to reinforce this idea that technology can accomplish just about anything. I mean, if you had told 10-year-old uh, Jonathan <laughs> that one day he would have a computer that would fit in his pocket and would allow him to communicate with everyone he knows, and whether it's through voice or video or text, that I would be able to tap into the world's, you know, database of all human knowledge at a touch of a button, I would have thought you were crazy. That that would have seemed completely patently impossible to me. I mean, let's talk about an era where at that point, the most sophisticated machine out there was a 1984 Macintosh computer uh, or the IBM PC. And you look at that and you think, well, the, these are great machines, but no, you, there's no way I'm going to have one of these in my pocket, let alone be able to do all these other things you're talking about. So once you look into that, you start to realize, oh, we have now built up this expectation that because we have this amazing, uh, incredibly rapid evolution of technology in our recent past, we start pro projecting that and thinking the same sort of progress is going to continue unabated. It's actually just going to pick up speed. And then we start thinking, oh, well, that means that before long we're going to have these sort of uh, incredibly sophisticated, artificially intelligent constructs as part of our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case because what it does is it, it assumes that all technological advancement proceeds at the same speed. 
which isn't tr- <laughs> that's not the case. Well, what do you um, mean the chatbot? The chatbot said I was going to get a <laughs> refund. What are you talking? About? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The chatbot passed your Turing test. Uh, <laughs> well, one thing I did want to kind of end on because I think this is sort of the 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 capper of discussions about how AI is uh, potentially hazardous is this is a discussion that's come up many times over the past, I'd say, three or four years about how AI and automation are going to end up uh, displacing people. It's going to end up eliminating jobs. And there are lots of different points of view on the subject. You've got people who say, yes, some jobs are going to go away. They are the very repetitive jobs, the ones, the things that AI are good at, like being able to do the same thing over and over and over again with very little variation. You know, the more you vary from the norm, the more difficult it is for a machine to do. But those jobs will probably go away. But as a result, more jobs will be created. And other people are saying, maybe in the short term, but in the long term, we're going to see automation take over everything and no one's going to have a job and we got to figure this out and something's going to, you know, the entire world economy is going to collapse or we're going to have to go to some form of guaranteed basic income for the entire world or we're going to have to do away with the concept of money altogether. Um, Now that we've divorced money from labor, what do we do? And so we're seeing like all these kind of conversations going around. And I thought I would tell you guys a bit because just for the heck of it, I found an MIT uh, technology review article from 2018 that gathered together all of the major predictions for what automation was going to do, um, like how many jobs it was going to destroy versus create. And uh, I think it's pretty telling. I'm just going to cite one year. They, they have years from 2016 up to, let's see, 2035. But I'm just going to do 2025, two different predictions you had Forrester predicting that in the U.S., uh, automation would destroy, the words of the review, not me, uh, 24,186,240 jobs and only create 13,604,760 jobs. So you're looking at a deficit of more than 10 million jobs. Meanwhile, Science Alert said jobs destroyed, 3,400,000. So... 21 million jobs fewer (laughs) predicted than Forrester. So if you're looking at a 21 million disparity between predictions, do you think it's safe to say we don't know yet? (laughs) I I don't think we know yet. I don't (laughs) think we know yet. I think it's a very good, I think it, I think the idea of, uh, unfortunately, the line of jobs being lost is, uh, is part of the, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, method of journalism. I, I sure. do I do think it's absolutely true that automation is not only on the horizon, it's here. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, if we just talk about agriculture, for example, you know, there is um, right now in Washington, again, Washington State um, is, you know, piloting a harvesting robot that they are going to be using uh, for the first time in this next harvest, uh, Apple Harvest, where they're using this sort of hu- uh, Hoover-like vacuum to pick apples, right? You know, Amazon is introducing uh, some new automation technology that's going to uh, cut the box building jobs that you see in some of their warehouses. So they're not, they're displacing roles, they're changing roles, right? So uh, instead of actually creating, actually making boxes, they're still human beings putting boxes on conveyor belts, but they're not making the boxes because that leads to a lot of waste, right? Because there's a lot of human error involved. 
Um, and also these machines can crank out 600 to 700 boxes you know, per hour, which a human being cannot do. Um, so there are certainly, uh, there's, there's, there's no denying that machines are replacing human beings in, in that way. I don't, I don't think it's like literal robots. I think that there are machines that are doing jobs that are very difficult and taxing on human beings. They're doing those jobs better and therefore, yes, displacing people. Um, you know, what Amazon will say is that it's not so much about uh, replacing people. It's about repurposing people mm-hmm. and um, giving people jobs that are more meaningful. Uh, I think that is a public relations line. Um, but I also think there's a there's a certain element of truth to it, which is, you know, can we use machines to take people out of jobs that are both physically and emotionally taxing for them? I think certainly. And that could, you know, could be one of the upsides. But I think that, yeah, of course, there are jobs that are going to be replaced by machines that are, you know, not only faster, but have a, a much lower margin of error. Mm-hmm. And there may be some, you know, redistributive universal basic income solution to solve the practical problem of how will people eat. Uh, but it won't solve the bigger cultural and psychological problem, which is that the American dream and everything we're encouraged to think uh, in this country is that through work you can better yourself and that this one major source of your identity and value in the world is your success in your career and how much you achieve and how many promotions you get. I mean, look at the the famous Christmas movie um, what's it called? <laughs> Sorry, you're, the uh, Christmas Carol. No, 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 no. It's oh, 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 it's life. a Wonderful Life. No, yeah. not even that one. It's the one with the guy Chevy Chase. Oh, oh Christmas National Vacation. Lampoon's yeah. okay. Christmas oh, yeah. Vacation. Yeah, Christmas Vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at look at National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Chevy Chase's whole identity and worldview is predicated on that Christmas bonus. And you know, we've we've been encouraged by a hundred years, if not more, of this post-industrial revolution world to equate our value in life with the financial value that we create. And we may be technically, economically able to move away from that, but psychologically, it's going to be intensely traumatic, and we have not even begun to deal with the consequences of that or even think about them. Yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, you have the technologists who argue, and I think rightly so, that there are going to be a lot of aspects that AI simply will not be ready to just take over. Uh, Again, the further out from the repetitive norm you get, the more challenging it is for a machine to do, uh, whereas a human can pick up on it pretty quickly. We're really good at doing that. But um, so there's going to be certain things that at least for in the the foreseeable future are going to be really firmly in the realm of human beings. Uh, but you also, you know, end up having to think about who's messaging this out, right? Because that always creates that little question you have too. If it's IBM saying, the uh, the technology we're creating is going to augment people in the future, then you remember, oh, well, IBM's also designing those systems. Um, but I still think that there is truth to it. I mean, I think that there is truth that AI can augment people. And as you were saying, Kara, it can help take over parts of jobs that really humans are not very well suited for in the first place and certainly wouldn't be considered the type of jobs that most people would find meaning from, right? That they wouldn't find value in that opportunity. They would be doing it because they would need to make ends meet, but it's not necessarily, I don't think there's a lot of people who dream of making boxes. Um, so I think it's it's one of those things where I think it always benefits you to kind of take a step back 
think about who's messaging this um, and and really take a look at what's actually going on. Because as it turns out, when you look at a prediction and one person's predicting that 24 million jobs are going to be destroyed in 2025 and someone else is saying it's more like 3 million jobs, what it, ultima- <laughs> what it ultimately tells us is that nobody really knows. And uh, that, that in itself is scary. It's not, it's not making us feel better about the future necessarily. But I think what it really tells us is the future is not set in stone at all and that if we are going forward knowing – the capabilities of AI, how it can work with us. If we hold companies and individuals accountable for designing AI systems that can uh, uh, be used in an ethical way and uh, and then hold the people who are implementing those systems to make sure it's done in that ethical way, then we can see the benefits of AI. Uh, I think AI ultimately is a very complicated tool, but it's like other tools, which means you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. And it ultimately comes down to the implementation and and vigilance, right? We have to just make sure that we're paying attention to what's going on and not just trusting that the machines are doing everything correctly. Because as far as the machines are concerned, they're doing everything correctly. It's just that the outcome is not so great for us. Um, a hammer is always doing its job. Yeah. Who's- it's just a matter of who's using the hammer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it depends on whoever's holding the hammer, what he or she thinks of as a nail. That's, That's what it right. really comes down to. Uh, well, guys, thank you so much. We're going to have another episode coming up uh, in next week, guys. So so t- stay tuned because Oz and Kara are going to be back. We're going to talk about how different parts of the world are viewing AI from uh, sort of a, a policy and regulations kind of perspective, as well as just like, what are just the different approaches to artificial intelligence around the world? Because as it turns out, you know, Kara, you've already mentioned a couple times how the EU has been taking steps to try and and think about this ahead of everybody else. But what's going on around the world? And I think you guys are going to be surprised. I know I was because uh, I am so US-centric in my show that uh, I often have blinders on. So we'll have to join us for that episode that's coming out next week. And uh, if you haven't already gone out and subscribed to Sleepwalkers, this is your reminder to go out and do that because the show's fantastic. You've got some great interviews. You have fantastic conversations between the two of you about these these subjects. And it's really educational and entertaining and thought-provoking. And uh, congratulations on creating such a really compelling show. Well, thank you, Jonathan. We're, we're really enjoying uh, working on Sleepwalkers. And, uh, you know, this conversation is, has been fantastic for us to have a chance to step out of our own show and think about some of these ideas in conversation with you. So we really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jonathan. You're very welcome. And so, guys, uh, if you want to get in touch with me, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Pop on over to the website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find an archive of all of our past episodes there. You'll also find links to the social media presence in our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. We greatly appreciate it. And we will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 